Literature with Nancy Richards. Hi there and welcome to SFM Literature It Is, the show as you know about words and writing and books and reading and well on the show today a fair amount of globe trotting as well so hopefully you're going to stay with us. Got a little bit of climate change, Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, a township in Cape Town, publishing and libraries in Scotland and more. So do stay with us, we're with you right through until four o'clock. Well, let's get uh, started with the lineup. Let's starting first with Hero. Well, today we have a two-part Hero piece today, contrasting experience with a discovery, I think you could say. And first up, the promised short interview with renowned U.S. author who talks about her latest book called Flight Behavior, Butterflies and Climate Change, coming to us from Barbara King Solver. And then rather newer on the writing scene, we have uh, from Kailicha Sipo Kekezwa, whose dream is to be a very successful writer. And uh, his latest book is called Ndi Zigwazi Ngowam, which means I have stabbed myself with my own spear. And he's going to be telling us a little bit about where that story comes from. Story, in fact, that started off as a play, radio play. Then in our book club feature, we have an international book club member today. She's Louisa Joyner of Canongate Publishers from uh, Edinburgh in Scotland. And uh, as publishers, they've transcended the printed page. But she'll also be telling us a little bit about a fascinating book called The Awakening, which after um, well over 100 years, they have decided to republish. And then in tech, so another one with an international twist. We're going to be talking to BBC radio producer and marathon mum, also blogger Sarah Parfit, recently back from Ethiopia, where she has uh, not only been blogging, but doing all sorts of work, media planning. So we'll check out that story. After the news at two in our book to a kind of personal story, it's a book called Motohuma the Firehead. It's written by Jennifer Munro, and she tells a tale. She tells a tale about a young woman, not a, a million miles from herself, I guess. So it's set in Rhodesia and also in the UK. So we'll find out where she's coming from on that one. Then in our bookshelf today, our reader is she's a young woman, in fact, that I met carrying a huge bag. Uh, and inside of that bag was an even huger book. So she's going to be telling us what it is and why she's reading it. Our story feature, we're going to be hearing the backstory to something called Debooking with Panache uh, Chigumadzi on the summer of 500 Digital Anthology. I'm not quite sure if that's how they say it, but we'll get the story on that one. It certainly sounds like a very interesting anthology. And as you hear online... Then after the news at three, Roger Webster will have a story up his sleeve, as he always does, around about that time on a Sunday. And then finally in back page, a young woman artist from Scotland. Well, she was over here in South Africa recently, helping to, as it were, make libraries. And she'll be talking about her own experience with books as art and in libraries in Scotland. And all of that uh, culminates in the Sunday play, so hopefully you're going to stay with us. But just before we move on, quick footnote to take the opportunity to tell you about the French Book Festival. Now that comes up in May 15th, 16th and 17th and the programme is now out. So if you plan to be there, it is uh, said to be the premier book festival here in South Africa. So if you plan to be there, don't wait until everything is booked out. Just check online right now and if there's anything you want to book, now is a good time to do it. The site, just as a heads up, is www.flf, that's for the French Literary Festival, flf.co.za forward slash program forward slash one. So that's flf.co.za is what you need to do, not need to uh, need to do. Stay tuned, it's SAFM Literature.
let's get started on the show today then with an interview, in fact, that I did a while back with much-loved U.S. author Barbara King Solver, who's probably best known for her Africa novel, The Poisonwood Bible. Well, she wrote that back a while ago in the 19, late 1990s, and there have been many more since then, including her very latest, which is called Flight Behaviour, Think Butterflies. Well, when I spoke to her before, she said that she began each of her books with a question, and I asked her in this case what the question was. Why is it so difficult for us to talk about climate change? How is it that a group of us can look at the same set of facts and come away believing different things? And specifically, why is this happening around climate change, which is clearly the most important thing for us to talk about now? I mean, all of this. It just, it just worried me a lot and it intrigued me. And so I started reading the psychological literature i mean there are people who study this how do we decide what we believe what are the processes it turns out they're not anything like what we think they are we think that we study the facts and make a decision actually we make a decision and then look for the facts that support mm -hmm. it i mean all of us pretty much that's how we work so i'm fascinated about how this this problem, this discussion of or anti-discussion of climate change brings together different kinds of people who don't want to talk to each other. So to write a novel about that, I needed to construct a plot that would bring together these communities of science versus communities of faith, rural people versus urban people, educated people versus people who are sort of more populist and maybe even suspicious of education. I just needed to find some way to get them all together so that we could watch them not talking to each other, if you see what I mean. I do, I do. <laughs> but the book itself sort of pirouettes, if you like, around this migration of butterflies, this phenomenon of butterflies. Is mm -hmm. that something that you came across completely by chance, or was that your pivotal pivotal starting point? Well, I didn't know what my starting point would be. I didn't, I, I didn't think about, um, I didn't think about butterflies when I was conceiving of this novel. I knew I was going to need something, as I said, some phenomenon that would be seen, that would be understood differently by different kinds of people. I didn't know what it would be. And then, uh, and I did, I knew about the monarch butterflies. I don't know how much you know about them here, but it's this extraordinary biological phenomenon where these butterflies uh, who disperse over the entire North American continent every winter come, and I say come back, but they're not coming back because they're only like three weeks old. Gen they have their generations all over the continent, and then their the the granddaughters and grandsons come back to this one mountain range in Mexico, and they cover the trees and they cover the forests in this one little place with something that looks like flame, that something that looks like trees on fire. So yeah, I'd known about that for for many years. Didn't really think it was relevant to this novel until one day, I just woke up with the thought, what if that happened here? in my backyard, in the mountains behind my house, which are covered with, with forests. I just had a vision of that, and I thought, aha, there you go, because if that happened, scientists would look at it and say, oh, no, that's not, you know, what this, this is something, the, the change in the climate has messed things up, and this is a sign of it. But the, the people among whom I live would say, glory be, this is a miracle. 
and it has chosen our town. And so I knew that would that was my starting point. And then going back to what we discussed the other day about you having uh, you having sort of gleaned all this experience, so all these experiences in this book, you know about sheep shearing, you know about uh, climbing mountains, you know about um, what it is to be a lab technician and to have somebody congratulate you. There's so many things <laughs> that you seem to have um, found in the back of your memory to, to sort of populate the book. Well, a lot of it um, I found uh, in the front of my memory by reading. You know, I had to do a lot of research a lot of, uh, as I said, I read psychological literature about uh, sort of dis- um, emotional and psychological processes. I did a lot of reading about the science of, of these of these butterflies. I actually visited labs where people do this work, but the people, sort of the the, the local people in this novel, I I understand very well because those are the people among whom I live. And as a matter of fact, I live on a sheep farm. We have sheep. We have Icelandic sheep. And I never really thought I'd write about Icelandic sheep. But when I was casting around for you know a, something for these, I knew Della Robia's family. Della Robia is the protagonist. I knew that she needed to live on a farm, and these people needed to have some kind of a farm and I thought well why not a sheep farm I know how to shear sheep I know I know how to vaccinate sheep I know so much about what they look like and how they behave and how they smell and stuff I thought well that's just handy that's something I already know but um, I don't put my life into novels ever because it's not interesting enough um, actual events um, incident um, things that happen in my life are not generally useful for fiction unless I can figure out what they mean so because fiction is Thomas Wolfe said this fiction is not real life fiction is real life charged with meaning so that's what I have to do I have to look around for the the details that add up to my story and I have to charge them with meaning I, I want to lastly come back to the meaning in a minute but just Della Robbia Mm-hmm. Who is called Della Robbia? Only once, and, and, only one so far as Cordelia, I know. Cordelia, <laughs> Cub, and Bear. This is this is again the people in this book all have these exotic, marvelous names, which I think in themselves is a story. It is a story. Names, the names of characters, are very important to me because they are part of a landscape. At least in my country, names can be very regional and localized. And in this place, in Southern Appalachia. Uh, it happens. My family has lived there for many, many generations. And um, uh, just before I wrote this, started on this novel, a cousin of mine named Ovid Kingsolver uh, sent me a genealogy he had done on the Kingsolvers. And I, as I was reading it, I thought, we are, we are poor people, but we are rich in names. And so I just started making a list of the most interesting first names and the most interesting last names because there are other king you know other than king silver and i had two lists and i stuck them on my bulletin board in my writing office and then whenever i needed a a character a new character i'd just go to the bulletin board and pick one and one you know mix and match so and actually dovey dovey carver uh, was chosen by lily my daughter because she just bounced in from school one day and she popped into my office as she usually did after school and i said okay i need a best friend go to the bulletin board and pull me up a name and she said dovey carver so, <laughs> <laughs> great story. So, Lily had a hand in this one as well. Just last my year, family is always yes. are always very active participants in my process. 
just talking of the, of the meaning and, and answers to questions and mind shifting, I mean, I know it's not your intention to, be, to bring a message, but do you hope that when people have got to the end of this, they will have a better sense of what climate change is? I mean, just as individuals, is, is that a, a well, hope? Well, I can't presume because I, I never presume that I know more than... Uh, my readers because I don't know who they are. I mean, there, there are hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, maybe people who live on the other side of the planet from me. Maybe some of them are physicists. You know, maybe some of them are climate scientists. So I don't know. I begin from a position of humility. I presume that Every day when I start my read, my writing day, I presume that there's somebody out there who knows more than this than I do. All I can do is tell a story that puts all of these things together, and I hope that as I learn things, that my readers will learn things too. Different. Th I mean, everybody takes something different from the novel, so I can't really uh, expect it to be one thing, and I don't. But what I do hope is that there's something for everybody. Well, indeed, let me tell you, there will be. That was Barbara Kingsolver on her latest book called Flight Behaviour, which will touch you on many, many different levels. Choose your level. If you'd like to find out more about her, check her site, which is simply kingsolver.com, kingsolver.com. Well, we're moving from one long-established, enormously successful writer to one has, who has uh, all those things in his reach. He's Sipo R. Kekezwa. And he's written a book about two teenage boys who struggles around living and learning. He outlines in the book called Ndizigwazi Ngowam, which translates into I have stabbed myself with my own spear. Well, the story plays out in an unnamed township in Cape Town, presumably not a million miles from Kailicha, where Sipo himself actually lives. But it's not a new book because Sipo wrote this uh, in the late 90s, I think, as a radio drama. Talking of which, he's also apparently entered the SAFM radio drama competition. Well, we've got him on the line, but before we get into radio drama, let's um, let's start with this book that he's done now. Hi, Sipo. Nice to have you with us. Sipo, let's start at the beginning. Did you write this book in English? I, I mean, I think you wrote it first as a play, but what language did you write it in to start with? I wrote it in, in Klausen. Okay. Because I aimed to... To reach an audience as a quote. Okay. Did it, did it get aired on Umslobo Wenene? No, ma'am, it never was. Okay. It okay. never was. Then, that's why I decided to rewrite it as a novel now for this competition, for Sunlam's competition. Okay, okay. So tell us the story. It's about two young boys, two teenage boys. Just tell us who the boys are. No, there is a school dropout, grade 10 dropout. But he has got so many plans of living. Then Tola is repeating grade 11. He's being raised by his uh, caring, caring but poor grandmother. But then seeing that, seeing that he started smoking and drinking together with another, they think of ways to scam people off their money. Sometimes they change their money into useless paper. Other times they rob them of their ATM cards. I can't help feeling that this is a story um, that must be, there must be many young men like that, like, like uh, Kola and Doda in Kailicha. Is the, is, they are, they yeah. are in our township, in our township. So is there a sort of, um, is there a message in your book? Is there a message of hope? Are you trying to reach those young guys who, who might, whose life might be going this way 
to give them hope in any way? Young people must appreciate what their parents are doing for them. They must wait for other natural things. They must wait about them. And they must be careful of peer pressure. So after you decided to write, to turn this play into, into a book, have you aimed it at young people themselves or is it for adults? Both young people, it's entertaining for both, for both young people and uh, adults. And especially it's warning both of them, to both young people and adults. But the language used is that of young people. So you've... Uh, you've everybody can relate. Mm -hmm. Everybody can relate to the story, man, to, yeah, the, yeah, to the story. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I'm just thinking... It, it, I, about it having been um, a play and now you've turned it into a book but I think yes. you asked that you, you know playwriting is really your thing and I think that you've entered uh, a play for the SAFM uh, playwriting competition can you tell us a little bit about that story yes ma'am I have it's titled one man's day another man's thing it's 10 years into democracy and the preparation for celebration are underway but there's this, this guy with this translate he calls himself the angel of death, who approaches funeral directors and sells his services for hire to kill for them. Seeing that it, uh, they have the death is their business, they agree, and then, then they take it a step further. They approach nurses from public hospitals and pay hospitals and hire nurses to do the same for them. Mm. Well, wish you, wishing you every success on that one. I know that the results of the of the playwriting competition are coming up very soon, so we'll wait to see how that yeah. goes. But, you know, Sipo, it seems that you're determined to get messages across. I think you're also writing a children's book and working yeah. a lot with young people. Tell us what else you're doing. I read about almost everything except poetry, every gender except poetry. And are you writing it with with a message? Uh, this one, this one I'm, I'm writing, this one I'm working on well for, for entry into Maximilian Longman's Literature Award for 11 year old. It's just about uh, how the youngsters, how, how little ones can think, Sipo, just tell me, you're battling with the line, I'm battling a little bit too, but just tell me, when did you start to write and, and why? Were you a great reader as a child? Yes, ma'am, I am a great reader. I am, I started in the late 90s, 1994-95. I am a great reader because, you know, I, I grew up in the, when we were told fables, storytelling, and that in, in return I had, I, 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 I became to, to tell fables to other people as well. I think that's what started me. Well, hopefully you've got a, a long and successful future ahead. Sipo, thank you very much. I'm sorry about the quality of the line, but very best of luck with all your writing. And you right. take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you, ma'am. Thanks thank very you. much. That was uh, Sipo Kekeswe. Sorry about the quality of the line. There was a pity. But uh, if you'd like to get hold of his book, his, his latest book, it's, which was, in fact, as you heard, it was a radio play initially written for Mkloba Wenene. It's called Ndizi Gwazi Ngawam, which uh, translates into I have stabbed myself with my own spear. Well, Sipo's doing all sorts of other things, but his book is published by NB Publishers. So if you'd like to get hold of it, it's called Ndizi Gwazi Ngawam. You're listening to SAFM Literature.
Well, next up here on SAFM Literature, it's time to talk to another member of our The Book Club, the feature where we, as you know, talk to people either locally or abroad or involved in one way or another in the book industry. Well, today that's going to take us to Scotland, to Edinburgh and to Canongate. Publishers Canongate were founded back in 1973. And it seems, just to give you a brief bit of history, that the company very nearly went under around 1994. But it became independent again following a management buyout by current publisher and managing director Jamie Bing. Well, it's since emerged as one of the most dynamic publishing houses in Britain. How interesting is that? And to tell us all about it, we have on the line, uh, tell us about the journey it is, Louisa Joyner, who's the editorial director of fiction at Canongate. She's also an editor, interestingly, of a book that they've recently republished called The Awakening, recently republished after well over 100 years, um, which incidentally had co- and coincidentally has an introduction by Barbara King Solver, who we heard from earlier. Well, we have Louisa on the line to tell us all. Hi, Louisa. Hello. Nice to have you with us. My goodness me, what a lot of things we have to talk about. Um, Louisa, I'm <laughs> going to start, if I may, with the awakening, because just by co- co- complete coincidence, we heard from Barbara Kingsolver earlier on our program. She was talking about her book, Flight Behaviour. Um, tell us a little bit about the awakening. Why did you decide to republish it after 116 years? And why Barbara Kingsolver to do the intro? The awakening is a book that's been very close to my heart for a very long time and uh, the reason for republishing it was because actually I think you could argue that certainly in the UK it hadn't ever been published. Um, it's an American classic and it's a very, very widely read book um, in terms of uh, American students and ideas about American culture but a lot of the American canon hasn't made it into British readers' consciousness in the way that you might expect. And so um, for The Awakening, for example, um, on American review sites like Goodreads, it's got over 80,000 reviews, but before we reissued it in the UK, the UK editions of The Awakening had five. And it was one of those novels that lots of people knew about or had vaguely heard about or or knew was important, but they hadn't read it. Um, And so I was really excited about the opportunity to bring a book that is extraordinarily and unnervingly fresh. I think if you ask people to guess when it was written, they might say, you know, at some point in the 20th century, but it's unnervingly uh, contemporary in style and thematic concern. Yeah. and it, so it was. It was a real excitement about about bringing, uh, getting the UK to focus on a book that you know really should be more widely read. Yeah. Um, and I suppose part of those timings were also about the fact that it's a really it's a book that's talking about uh, ideas about femininity and motherhood that we are all still uh, grappling with in a way that's really interesting. Um, and so. Uh, I was really excited that yeah. we could reissue it. Yeah. Um, it'll, be in- it'll, it'll be interesting to see if in another hundred years it's still fresh and relevant and if we, as women we won't still be grappling with the same issues. Because it, I'm just looking at the back cover here and it's, it says that it's widely regarded as one of the forerunners of feminist literature alongside of uh, mm. Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And interesting that mm. in her intro, Barbara Kingsolver also says what you're saying now, that it absolutely could be written about today, providing the name mm. Edna of the heroine will perhaps change to something ever so slightly more contemporary. Uh, has, it been, has, it well, has it been well received? 
absolutely. It has. I mean, it, 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 it's a book that changes people's lives. It, 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 it's so intimate in its honesty about uh, the female sense of self. Um, and I think a lot of people get very uh, moved by it and feel that it connects with them in, in a way that they never necessarily even wanted to express their sense of isolation. But it profoundly speaks to them. There's a moment where uh, Edna's talking about how much she loves her children and how much she's prepared to do for them and she says I'm prepared to give my life for them but I'm not prepared to give myself yeah. and um, this idea of, of, of what it means really to be uh, a grown up woman in a world where you're defined by whether it's your relationships to your children or your partners or even your work in life this kind of immutable sense of self and I think uh, I've been really great examples there's a one of the sort of most prominent radio stops in the UK are um, where the where novels and um, non-fiction get serialised on the BBC, they did The Awakening when we reissued it. It was Book of the Week on Radio 4. Mm. And on Woman's Hour, we had people talking about how, you know, people ringing in and talking about how this book could change their life. I think um, it has been wonderfully received. And we did some amazing events with women of all ages. I think it's a book, that, and, and, and it's much more radical but Anna Karenina, and I don't mm -hmm. want to say too much because I don't want to give away the ending. Well, yes, well, well, don't say anything more yes, because, I mean, you've, you've certainly whetted my appetite and I'm sure the appetite, because it's a universal story I'm hearing that will apply to women all over the world. But what's interesting is that you say how excited you were to be publishing this, which brings me to the bigger picture of Canongate Publishers. I'm just thinking of all the hundreds and thousands of women writers that are now producing books you chose to uh, publish something that was written 116 years ago on what basis do you side decide what you're going to publish well i think the really interesting answer to that question is it and it sounds terribly simple but for Canongate, one of the things that's really important for us is that it always starts with the book and how can we you know our job as publishers is about helping people find great writing whatever that means um and that doesn't necessarily mean very literary writing it might be that it's um on a topic that we think is really important or it might be something that we think no one else is doing but we try to be brave in our publishing and i think that there are um the the real skill of a publisher is in a world where you're bombarded with choices is somebody bothering to take the trouble to explain to you why you should make this one um, and that's about everything from the quality of the writing to how the uh, how you could relate to the author to how we can get it out into the world and and, and I think it is worth saying with the awakening that one of the things that really interested me about it right now was it was the opportunity to publish it as an ebook and mm. to celebrate it digitally because for lots and lots of previously published books they've never really had that life because they were celebrated and existed before that medium existed and i don't mean they haven't been released there are all kinds of books that are there but but making something available and publishing it are two such different things yes. precisely because their love and care and effort goes into making readers feel like this is really worth their time and then yeah. we take that we, that integrity we take really really seriously um, so yeah, if I can just, just jump in there, what right. I haven't, and we've talked yeah. a lot about the awakening. We haven't talked about who wrote it in the first place. It's is it Kate Chopin? Is that how you pronounce her name? It is. Yeah. It is Kate Chopin. And how thrilled um, she would be to know that it's going to be an ebook. Well, as a woman whose husband died quite young and worked uh, writing stories for magazines to support her family um, alone as a single working mother in the late. 19th century, I think she'd be delighted. I think you know, she'd be delighted to have any sense that it was 
being read and celebrated. Yeah. It was a, you know, that the fact that it was about real ideas about motherhood wasn't an accident. She was, you know, she was living a very difficult life in a world that wasn't very interested in that. Yeah. Um, so I think, and so in that sense, whenever you think about what you publish, you start with the writing, but you think about, you know, how you're going to be able to celebrate that for somebody and what Canongate can do that other places can't do because the wonderful thing is there are all kinds of publishers doing all kinds of things. Mm. Um, and that, that might sound like a generic answer, but it's a really sincere one. Yeah, yeah. Actually. Well, if and Kate Chopin is listening up there, wherever she is right now, congratulations <laughs> on finally getting your, your book into an e-book, which means it's going to be available to lots more people. But you talk about being bombarded with material... Um, to what extent, Louisa, are you bombarded with manuscripts? How many people are out there trying to get their work uh, p put out there, published out there? And just going back to what I was saying, really, does Canongate have a... Uh, are you are you well-known for a particular genre of book? There are absolute um, gigantic swathes of people writing coming from all directions, both just directly straight to us as writers writing um, and sending unsisted. We, we do accept manuscripts directly, unlike lots of publishers, but also a lot of the work we do is with um, uh, authors' agents and they also submit. So there, there is a huge amount of material out there um, to consider and think about. But part of what makes that easy to deal with is the answer to your second question, which is we're very clearly focused on um, very high-quality publishing. We, we publish into all kinds of areas from very um, commercial non-fiction to very literary non-fiction. We have a literary fiction list. Predominantly, we publish Michelle Faber. We publish um, Barack Obama, actually. We published his memoirs. Um, uh, in the UK, Margaret Drabble is a novelist and artist, Rita Zeki, who was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year with her amazing tale for the time being. Um, Kate Grenville. Uh, it's a really broad and yeah. um, very carefully curated list. The books are quite different from one another, though. We don't, it's, we're not genre publishers. Yeah. We like books to stand, stand alone. Mm. on the list. I think it's fair to say. Just looking at it's the history... It's quite difficult to encapsulate. <laughs> yes, yes. Just looking at the, um, you know, the history of Canongate itself, I mean, how the publishing mm. world has changed. It was founded in mm. 1973. Maybe you can give us mm. an idea of on what basis it was founded. And then in 1994, it nearly went under. In those 20 years, what happened? Give us the first part, and then in the years since, what has happened that it's turned around? Let's start with the, its early history. It was a Scottish publisher founded with a real commitment to um, local publishing, and as a result, there are some amazing authors who we continue to publish. Um, but the crucial change was uh, Jamie Bing, RMD, who was the person with a passion and drive to see that this was a deeply authentic, committed publisher, but a small publisher in a world at that point where imprints up and down the country were getting bought by the big conglomerates so it's when Hutchinson and Heinemann become part of Random House and um, uh, you know Alan Lane you know has always been part of Penguin but you've got Jonathan Cape and Harville Second all these little houses were being kind of brought up and combined to be a greater single voice uh, you know it's a few years later but it's the same principle but Jamie sees this amazing a company with deep integrity and an, an excitement about yeah. some kind of publishing and see an opportunity to, to stay true to those values but also to grow in ambition and to think about publishing beyond 
that more local. So I think one of the things that happened is that we stay absolutely true to our Scottish roots. It's a really important part of the company. But a lot of our publishing is, is, is you know, way, way beyond any sense of sort of the very local. But it's knowing where you're from so that you can work out where you are, if that makes yeah, any sense. Yeah. And I think um, it's, it's taking, talking of going beyond, I think there's now Canongate TV. So you haven't confined yourselves to, uh, to the cup between the covers of a book. Absolutely. We haven't actually. And I think that's really interesting and fundamental. And one of the things that, you know, I believe in passionately and Canongate, um, does is, is remember that storytelling is what publishing is about. And there are all sorts of ways to tell stories, you know. We, we produce beautiful books and that is an essential part of what we do but actually the re you know, the fundamentals are about how you tell stories whether that's you know reading them aloud or thinking about engaging them in a different way whether it's digitally or through uh events how you celebrate and um, how you share great writing is fundamental to what we do and sort of it, we, we make sure that we never confuse the format with the meaning and the book is an incredible technology. It's an amazing, portable, brilliant way of, of getting access to yeah. fantastic stories. But yeah. it isn't the only way to do it. Louisa, just... And editing a great story yeah. doesn't mean you have to print it. Okay, okay. It, it sounds to me very much like Canongate is sort of accommodating the very changing landscape of, of publishing and storytelling uh, more broadly, as you say. If anybody would like to find out a little bit more, firstly, about The Awakening, which sounds absolutely super, but also about the, the publishing company as a whole, your website is what? It's www.canongate.tv. Okay. Well. And you'll find all sorts of content on there. It's a really fun place to be yeah excellent that's, well, that's a place to start who knows but that you might uh, one day publish some south african writers and how interesting would that be oh well yes no we definitely in fact um we're going to be publishing an amazing south african novelist uh later this year that's sally andrew okay um that's yet to come she's a very exciting south african fresh new voice so yeah that, that's a, that's not a hope that's a definite Excellent. Very pleased to hear it. Louisa, thank you very much. Very best of luck. You clearly are enjoying your job, so thanks for sharing your time. Take care. Thanks for thanks having so much. me. Absolute pleasure. Louisa Joyner, she's the editorial director of fiction uh, at Canongate Publishers. They are, uh, it's a Scottish company. But if you'd like to know a little bit more, you can check their site, which is canongate.tv, canongate.tv. And I'm sure also there you'll find more information about The Awakening by Kate Chopin. That's uh, exactly as it sounds. And that, too, is published by Canongate. Stay with us. It's SFM Literature. SAFM Literature. Well, moving next here on SAFM Literature to Ethiopia, from where radio journalist and BBC producer Sarah Parfit has recently been blogging. Sarah went there to set up a community journalism project, something that she knows a lot about. And she spent a few days there at a community called Gende Tesfa, I hope I pronounced it right, also at a school there. Well, apparently every member of this community is affected one way or another by leprosy, so there's quite a story there. But Sarah partnered with an organisation called Partners for Change, about which she'll be telling us more in just a minute. But uh, it's really about her blog that we're chatting right now, and her blog, which is a bit of a clue, is called Diary of a Marathon Mum, because Sarah herself is also a marathon runner with, I don't know, how many, uh, how many marathons have you got under your tackies there, Sarah? Well, I've actually done 13 marathons as a fun runner. 
but I have oh. to stress it is as a fun runner. <laughs> I'm not an Olympic athlete, yeah. so I just got a bit addicted when I started back in 2003. I did my first London Marathon then, and I had such a, an amazing experience. I thought, I've got to do this again. I've got to try and better my time. And uh, I also loved the social side of it because I met a, a lady on the course who's become one of my best friends, and I've been to her wedding, and she's been to my wedding. So it's more than just running. It's a lifestyle choice. Well, it sounds like a full-on addiction, if not obsession. <laughs> because I think, <laughs> if I'm not wrong, I think those, uh, a lot of those marathons have been... You talk about the London Marathon, but I think you've done many around the world. Yes, um, I think I've done... I think I did six London marathons so far. I've almost lost count. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I've done New York, Cardiff, Vienna... Berlin, but I think the one that really stands out is actually I did the Kathmandu Marathon back in 2005, and it was actually a South African friend who got me involved with that because we were at a New Year's party, and she said, "I've just signed up for the Kathmandu Marathon." That was in December, obviously, and she said, "Do you want to do it with me?" It's in six weeks' time in February, and I thought, "Well, that's slightly crazy." Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was six weeks away, um, but we did it together, wow. and. Um, to my absolute amazement, I was the second woman across the line. So it was a very small marathon, a very small field. There's only about 100 people doing it. So I think it's the first and last time I'll ever get a position in a marathon. <laughs> well, well, it's quality that counts. But I'm just thinking that's a T-shirt to have. I did the Kathmandu Marathon. I think that's really quite <laughs> something. But Sarah, moving on from Kathmandu and all those other places, uh, Ethiopia. Now, how did you get to be in Ethiopia? Because we need to put the, the marathon running and the Ethiopian projects together. I've always been interested and passionate about international affairs and I've worked at the World Service and I've produced current affair programs and news programs. And so I've, that's always been my background. And about a year ago, um, I organized an event for another charity called Africa Turns Green and it was at the Belgian Embassy. And it was uh, in around November time. And whilst I was at the embassy, I was approached by a guy called Pete Jones, who's the director of Partners for Change Ethiopia, which you mentioned in your mm. introduction. And he said, well, in two weeks' time, we're off to Ethiopia um, to basically look at how we can promote the work we do, because this, the charity was established 30 years ago. And he said to me, would you be interested in coming on a pro bono basis and coming over and coming up with a media consultancy plan for us? So I turned around, I said to my husband, <laughs> it's only chance that you could <laughs> look after my two kids who are five and seven for a week whilst I go over and see the work and come up with a consultancy plan. And my husband said, go for it. So that was the sort of my introduction to Partners for mm. Change Ethiopia. Mm. And when I was over there, I went to Bahadar, which is in the north of the country, and I spent a week with a film crew filming the work that the charity had done. And I was so moved and motivated uh, by what I saw that I decided to get involved with the charity. And as a result of that, last October, I organized an event at the House of Commons for the charity, which Michael Burke, the BBC correspondent, attended, and also uh, Princess Alexandra, the Queen's cousin. And since then, I've been involved with the charity, and I've, I've gone back to set up this community journalism project. Gosh, gosh, that is quite a backstory, isn't it? Uh, well, well, let's get on to the blogging bit in a minute. Let's, let's stay in Ethiopia. One of the places that you went to, I'm not sure if this coincides with what you just said, was a community called Gende Tesfa. What does that mean and in, how come they're all affected one way or another by leprosy? So Gende Tesfa is a, a different community. What happened was 
It's now 30 years uh, since the famine and since Live Aid and all the publicity surrounding Bob Geldof. So Partners for Change Ethiopia decided that they should focus on one community and they chose Gedda Tesfa. Now in Gedda Tesfa, as you mentioned, nearly every family is affected by leprosy and the reason for that is in the 1950s, 1960s, a Jesuit priest uh, set up the community and encouraged anyone with leprosy to come to that community because there was such a stigma surrounding leprosy that he decided it would be safer for people to live in the same community. And so that's how it really came about. That was in the 1950s, 1960s, and since then, it's continued to be a community affected by leprosy. Gosh, interesting. I think in your in one of your first blogs on your website, on your on your WordPress page, which is the Diary of a Marathon Mum, you talk about Ethiopia being Ebola free. I mean, what you know, leprosy seems like sort of a um, you know, sort of quite long ago relative to what we're looking at now, which is Ebola and, of course, HIV. Ethiopia, mm. is it Ebola-free? It is, and mm. um, the reason I wrote about that in my blog is when I arrived, sort of bleary-eyed, very exhausted from a long flight and talking all night on the flight, um, you know, the signs were up and they were checking people, um, but they were very proud to say that it was Ebola-free. Well, that's the good news. But let's get on then to your um, to your blog. Quite difficult to be to be going through the experiences and blogging at the same time. So, when you were there, um, what were you looking at? What have you been saying? So, I spent a week in Gendertesfa, and unlike last year when I went to a different part of the country, this time I was on my own, but with people from the charity on the ground. So Partners for Change has one person in an office in London and a team of about 150 Ethiopians across the country working for it in Ethiopia. And when I was there, I was helped by the team on the ground. Um, but what I did was I identified six case studies. So we're going to follow the lives of five or six families or individuals over the next six months. And I was writing up their stories and also taking pictures and, and gathering video clips of them and working out, you know, which stories to follow. So the idea is over six months, we will follow their lives. You know, every sort of five to six weeks, we're going to get an update about how things are going for them and also how the charity's helping them. Mm. So I was identifying those case studies and what was rather more complicated was trying to establish how we can update those stories if we're not there. So actually one of the people from the charity is going to help us. Um, he's got very, very good English and so he's able to sort of do that and also uh, he's going to have some help from the University of Diridawa where there are two university professors who are experts in media studies so collaboratively we're going to update those stories over six months so the idea is to give people a sense that if they donate money for the fundraising campaign for the 30th anniversary you know where's their money going to go is it going to really help people on the ground and it's to sort of illustrate what's going on on the ground isn't it interesting that a media plan, uh, you know, it sort of in the old days suggested one thing, but now a media plan is something that's that's current, isn't it? It's it's ongoing, a bit like your blog, yes. which which in some ways is almost part of the media plan. I was going to say, you know, firstly, how does Partners for Change affect change? But I mean, I'm beginning to see how it's affecting change, and how your blog, what what's your blog's role in it to get the to get the interest levels up? Well. I'll First of all, the blog idea was because I'm running the London Marathon in April, I decided to write a blog for that. But then, although I was given a press face, I wanted to raise money for the school in Gendertesfa. 
So I thought to get people interested and again to follow the story, uh, I decided to write a blog. But it was only after I'd got a marathon place I found out I was going to Ethiopia. So I've obviously incorporated that in the blog. Mm. So it's become a bit more complicated than it yeah. was going to be. Um, Partners for Change Ethiopia on the ground do a lot of fantastic work and they work in, at various levels. So they have women's empowerment groups, they have HIV groups, they help in the school with education, they're also involved in health projects, they're involved with helping orphans and trying to get them some support and their families. Uh, they help you know, very poor families with various day-to-day -day jobs. So there's a whole range of things that they do. Yeah, I'm just thinking that's many. That's a that's a huge amount, isn't it? Uh, very it's often, it's amount, but at the heart of what they do, Nancy, yeah. is uh, they want to help children living in poverty. So they just have a holistic approach to doing that by doing lots of other different projects to help children in their communities. And I suppose your job and the purpose of your blog is to sort of synthesise that all that or summarise it so that people don't go into sort of um aid fatigue which which is something isn't it so i mean the fact that you're running the marathon to raise money there that that helps give it a bit of a spike uh, you know i'm sorry to say it but it's uh people are very quick to get bored they are indeed and i mean if i just think about where i live i live in cookham and berkshire it's a sort of lovely area but we're sort of bombarded all the time with requests for charity donations whether it's sort of schools or other charities and it's very hard, people are suffering from charity fatigue, to try and do something a bit more creative. Um, it's, it's really hard to sort of engage people, so that's why we came up with this idea. We wanted to almost let people live the experience with us. And that's, that's why the Community Journalism Project came about. And although I think it will be complicated in that we've got to sometimes translate from Amharic for local language or the national language, I'm sure we can do it, even if it's yeah. a simple update every, yeah. you know, five to six weeks. Just, just, um, the yeah. marathon blog, I think, as well, is another way uh, of engaging people. And people seem to be quite interested because in England at the moment, there are lots of campaigns around to try and get people into fitness. Mm. And Sport England have got a campaign uh, called This Girl Can. And they're trying to sort of really engage women, particularly in sport. And so I'm also... You know, mentioning that sometimes in my blog. Sure. So, yes, it's just a way of engaging people. <laughs> it is a way of engaging people, but it's a way of cramming an awful lot into one small space. Just lastly, Sarah, the art of writing a blog is, is as we've just been witnessing, listening to you talk, is getting an awful lot in, in a sort of um, accessible, personable, look, this is just me chatting kind of a way. Um, if any any tips for anybody wanting to do something similar? I mean, do you just sit down at the end of the day and just sort of write it, or do you uh, plan it very carefully? I write it when I feel inspired. So I thought, if I write every day, I've been for a three-mile run, I've been for a five-mile run, people are going to switch off pretty quickly, because yeah. that's only going to appeal to a very small number of people, you know, people that really love run running and are passionate about running. So I decided to rather write about experiences which excite me or thoughts which I've, I've thought about on runs. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I went to Dubai in January and I did a 10K run there because there happened to be one on when I was there. And um, at the end of it, I met Halle Selassie. And so I, I wrote about that experience because for me as a runner, that was just so wonderful. Um, and I also wrote about a run I did in a desert with my friends. So I went out to the desert from Dubai and, and did a run one day and had a picnic. And so um, <laughs> I'm trying to find slightly unusual things to write about. And I think 
probably if I was going to offer any advice, although I'm, I'm by no means an expert, I would say it's a sort of surprise factor that counts, trying to make it a bit interesting and diverse. Well, I think unusual is definitely, you seem to manage to have achieved that, I would say, Sarah Parfit. Thank you very much. And what can I say? Very, very best of luck for the run in April for the London Marathon. And uh, if anybody much. would like to know more, check your blog site, or at least your WordPress, which is diaryofamarathonmum.wordpress.com, diaryofamarathonmum.wordpress.com. And if you want to know more about Partners for Change, their site is pfcethiopia.org, pfcethiopia.org. Dot org. Sarah Parfit, break a leg or whatever's appropriate. Thanks very much for your time. Take care. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Sarah Parfit, uh, BBC Radio uh, journalist and media trainer there, as you heard. And uh, do uh, hold thumbs for her coming up in April when she'll be doing, running the London Marathon. Sarah Parfit, and she's a uh, BBC Radio producer and media trainer, as you heard there. And uh, yes, absolutely, do check out her, her site, which is diaryofamarathonmum.wordpress.com. You're listening to SFM Literature.